0: Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, as we continue to make our way through the gospel of Matthew. Just so you know that uh, when it gets to the week before, the Sunday before Christmas Eve and Christmas Eve, we will do a very brief couple of sermons more focused directly on Christmas, so just be aware of that. But today, it's not a specifically Christmas sermon. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, I'm actually going to begin reading at the tail end of chapter 11 from last week's passage, and I'll read through the first eight verses of Matthew chapter 12. Again, this is the Word of the Lord. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 27. Matthew 11, starting in verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father... Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to Him, "'Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath.' He said to them, "'Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for him to eat?' nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I pray again that You would help us in this time to understand the arguments that the Lord Jesus gives in response to the accusation of the Pharisees and the religious leaders regarding the Sabbath. I pray that You would open up truths here that are relevant to us, that teach us about the nature of Christ, and warn us against mishandlings, ways of mishandling Your Word. And I pray that we would come away humble before Your Word and desirous to commune with the living God pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've titled the message, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and I'll just give you the outline. It's a pretty simple outline to to, to kind of have for where you're going. It's also there on the screen. You've got an introduction, which is the Sabbath controversy, which is verses 1 and 2. Kind of get oriented, what exactly is the accusation that's being laid at Jesus' feet, His disciples' feet? What are the Pharisees saying? There's a Sabbath controversy for the first two verses, then Jesus responds by appealing to three things. And those are really the main points of the message. Jesus responds by appealing to three things. Number one, David, King David in verses 3 and 4. Number two, Jesus appeals to the priests in the temple in verses 5 and 6. And finally, He quotes one of His favorite quotes, apparently. He quotes this already earlier in Matthew. Hosea the prophet, so he appeals to Hosea, verses 7 and 8. And just trying to boil down the main idea of the sermon as simply as I know how, here's kind of the main point of where I'm trying to go today. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and I want to add this, and its rest. He came to remove legalistic burdens and to give us true rest if we are willing to receive it. So, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and it's rest. He came to remove legalistic burdens and to give us true rest if we are willing to receive it. So, let's look here at the introduction, the controversy, the first two verses. Start with verse 1 of chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Now, before we get anywhere on this, I just want to say that the phrase, at that time, we saw last week. You may remember verse 25, same exact phrase at that time. Let me just say the same exact thing I said about it last time around. That phrase does not mean that the next event happened seconds after the first event. That's not what that means. It could have been actually chronologically a little disconnected. It just means around that time. But the reason Matthew uses a time word here is because he is connecting what he's saying now with what happened right before, not because they happened at the exact same moment in time, they happened close together, but because they are linked together by common theme. They are linked together by common theme, and that's very important to know. So the theme of what's being addressed here is not disconnected from what we covered last Sunday. And if I can just put this really simply... Sabbath, just follow this here. This is the only time in Matthew's gospel he will deal with Sabbath controversies with Jesus. Now, if you're familiar with Jesus, does He have a lot of Sabbath controversies with the different religious leaders? Between Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, are there a whole collection of Sabbath controversies? I mean, you could put a whole host of things together, healings on Sabbath, all kinds of controversies. Matthew, remember, is an editor. He can't include everything. John in his gospel said, if I were to include everything Jesus ever did, I'd, feel, I'd fill up every library in all the world. And even the, the whole earth would not hold all that Jesus did. So we have to edit. We have to select carefully to fit our themes what we want to say about Jesus. And so Matthew has handcrafted and selected these two particular Sabbath controversies and he's put them both this Sunday and Lord willing next Sunday we'll deal with the two Sabbath controversies. He has put them in his gospel in one place and he links this with last week's text with the phrase at that time. If you're getting lost, here's my point. Sabbath is about rest. It's called Sabbath rest, right? Don't work on the Sabbath. You're resting in the Lord's presence in the Sabbath. Is there any accident that what Jesus just said last week links to this week, do you see? Come to Me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then Matthew, what does He do? At that time, Jesus had two controversies about rest, Sabbath rest. Do You see the connection here. So, I don't think there's any accident that Jesus says, I'm the rest, that, that I, I can give you true rest in your soul that no one else can give you. And then He deals with controversies with those who do weigh you down with heavy legalistic burdens on the Sabbath, and they don't know how to give you true rest. That's the connection between last week's text and this week's text. So, real quick, the controversy goes like this. Just to quote, Ezekiel, uh, excuse me, Exodus 35 verse 2. This is just one of many texts you could reference in the Old Testament. Six days' work shall be done. But on the seventh day, that was their Saturday, right? On the seventh day, you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. It was capital punishment in the Old Testament for someone to work on the Sabbath day in normal circumstances. Now, let me just uh, mention here, one commentator puts it like this. Jesus' gracious invitation to give rest at the end of 11 to all who come to Him anticipates the teaching here in chapter 12 that Jesus knows and embodies all the blessed rest to which God's gift of the Sabbath had pointed. This is so significant. The Sabbath was not an end in itself. It was a foreshadowing, prefiguring purpose. It had that in the Old Testament to say, listen. One day a week, you see some physical work, you enjoy the Lord's presence and solemn rest, and that is pointing to what your soul needs, and that's the rest that comes in the Messiah, Jesus. That's what we need. That's what we long for, and that's what Sabbath was ultimately pointing toward. And remember, around Jesus in these chapters, opposition is rising. It is going up. And we're going to see His first direct disputes with the religious leaders so far in the Gospel of Matthew in today's passage and next week's passage. Let me uh, give you a little sense of the accusation that they're making against Jesus. It's easy to see. Jesus is walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Look again at verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to Him, "'Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath.'" Now, you probably could figure this out on your own, but I'll just mention, the dispute here is not a dispute about theft, okay? You're probably not even thinking that, but just I want to make this clear. They're not stealing, okay? Because they're just picking other people's food and they're eating it. That could be theft. No, Uh, Deuteronomy 23 verse 25 says this, "If "'If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you, so this is your neighbor's field. It's not your field. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand. This is allowed in Old Testament law. You can eat with your hand, pluck from your neighbor's field, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So you don't harvest your neighbor's field. Okay. You don't show up at your neighbor's field and say, hey, there's a law that we can take your grain. I got my sickle out here, and I'm just, I'm taking as much as I can. No, you're not supposed to actually steal. But the idea was you're not supposed to get the, the grain all the way to the edge of your crop and and okay. Boundary markers, you know, we have fences today, right, so you don't walk on someone's property. Back then they didn't so much have fences, they had boundary markers, stones that would be set up. Remember in the Old Testament it was a crime to move a boundary marker because you're stealing someone's property. You say, oh, that stone has always been one acre further over that way. You're like, I don't think so. I think you just stole an acre of my land. So they, they had boundary markers set up for people's land but pathways did not go around people's property. Pathways very often went straight through someone's property, just the shortest path. And so, you would have a walkway that goes straight through someone's path of grain, and their grain would come all the way up to the edge of the path, and you could just reach out your hand and grab from the edge there, and you could just simply move a little bit in your hand, the the outside would fall off, and you could eat a little snack on your way, and the Old Testament certainly allows that. But this is happening on the Sabbath. So, the, the, the disciples are not guilty of theft. They're being accused of Sabbath-breaking. They're being accused of working on the Sabbath. And as you saw, that's a capital offense in the Old Testament. Now, I uh, I, I considered just reading a long thing here, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, here's, here's what you can know. If you look into how the Jewish people around the time of Christ and even beyond Christ developed Sabbath law, you probably are aware of some of this already, but they had 39 sets of things that you could not do on the Sabbath that would constitute work. And if you think the list is endless, it is truly unbelievable. So they would say, okay, you can't go more than 3,000 feet, or I might think it was like technically 1,100 meters away from your home on the Sabbath day. To go one step further than that would constitute work on the Sabbath and you would be in big trouble. You could, but, but, some rabbis said, okay, here's the deal if you went about 1100 meters away from your home and then you had some food set up that food could count as an extension of your home and then you could walk another 1100 meters from that food does this sound like we're starting to kind of just get Kind of just weird arbitrary laws. And then here's the thing. If you had two different abodes where people lived, if you attached a rope from one house to the other, the second house could count as part of the first house and you could walk from one house to the other. You were allowed to eat a fig, but not anything more than, you could not hold anything more than a fig in your hand. If you ate it, you had to limit it to a certain amount and you could blah, 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 blah. blah. And the list just goes on page after page after page. Everything you can possibly think of, it was specifically spelled out. Now here's the point. Do you see how the religious system was beginning to do something that religious people can all have a habit of doing? What they started doing was they wanted to know the exact legal stipulation of every single tiny bit of law, and they wanted it to be spelled out to the point where one Jewish leader of the time said, he admitted, he said, much of the law we have on Sabbath is as mountains hanging by a single thread. Of Scripture. In other words, Scripture gives us very little of the details of "Thou shalt not work on the Sabbath," but we have made it into a massive project of exactly what constitutes work and what does not. And do you see how they started? They started leaning into a legal approach. Do you see how this could begin to hollow out the whole purpose of the day of rest? I mean, you're going to be stressed out just making sure you don't violate some law and get in big trouble with the religious leaders. You know, am I cooking the… right? You're not supposed to cook on the Sabbath. You're supposed to cook before the Sabbath, but then during the Sabbath, how are you supposed to deal with what you have in front of you? If water… You're not supposed to pour water in a certain way to take a bath because if the water spills on the floor, the spilling on the floor could constitute cleaning your floor, and therefore that should be not allowed. I mean, it just becomes laughably absurd when you read all the things that were actually written down around the time of Christ as to how these laws work. So do you see what's happening? The objective of Sabbath is being obscured by a bunch of laws made up by people that are not actually in the Bible, do you see? So you've got an endless list of laws, no one can keep it straight. The Pharisees debate among themselves which laws count, which laws don't count, which things you get in trouble to, which things you don't get in trouble to. Is anyone actually resting and enjoying the presence of the Lord right now? No. So the laws were getting in the way of the heart of the commandment. The commandment was, listen, don't do your day job on Saturday. Instead, soak in the presence of the Lord. Physically recuperate and spiritually recuperate in the Lord's presence. That's the point. And when you turn it into 10,000 rules and regulations, my goodness, you're in serious danger of distorting the entire purpose of the Sabbath in the first place. Can we go back to chapter 11, verse 28? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you see in context how that flows so well into the next story? So let's deal with the accusation how Jesus deals with it. Verse 3, this is our first main point here. Jesus responds by appealing to King David. Verses 3 and 4. And this is an interesting response. Let's read it again. Verse 3, Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Now that may be slightly confusing. We won't turn there. If you want to jot down 1 Samuel 21 verses 1 through 6, that's the story He's referring to. I'm not going to read it right now. But 1 Samuel 21 verses 1 through 6 is the event that Jesus is referring to. If you don't remember that story, remember Jonathan and David were best of friends. Saul, Jonathan's dad, wants to kill David. David wants to make sure that Saul is still after David or when maybe he's at peace with David. So he asked David to shoot arrows and if he shoots arrows past the rock, it means Saul is still angry. If he shoots them before the rock, it means Saul's not angry. And so Jonathan tells him, yes, my dad, he tried to just pin me to the wall with a spear. He definitely wants to hurt you. And so they shoot the arrows in a certain way. David knows it's not safe to go back to the king. David runs away. And as David runs away, he goes to Nob, the city just south of Jerusalem. He's shows up where the tabernacle was located at the time, and Jesus shows up to the priest, Abiathar, I believe was his name, and Jesus shows up there and he says, "Um, I desperately need bread because I am perishing with hunger. I need bread. And the priest says, I don't have any bread on hand except the holy bread. And the holy bread, it is explicitly commanded in God's Word, no one is to eat the holy bread, the bread of the presence, except the priests. That is explicitly spelled out in Scripture. Only the priests are to eat this bread. Let me just quote that verse. If you jot this down, Leviticus 24, verses 5 to 9 says this, "'You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons.'" That's the priesthood. "'And they shall eat it in a holy place.'" Now, you get this? You've got the menorah, the burning lampstand in the in the tabernacle, which represents God's shining presence to bless his people. The lampstand is called is called to turn towards the bread of the the bread of the presence. So you've got this, this table of bread, and you've got twelve loaves every week that would be freshly cooked and put there by the priest, and those twelve loaves, not surprisingly, represent the twelve tribes of Israel. So that the, the light represents God's face of blessing. May the Lord look upon you and bless you. May he give you peace. God's face is shining on the presence of his people represented by the bread. And that bread was sacred. It was holy bread. And the only people to eat it would be the priest and the family of the priest. They would take it every week after seven days, and they would replace it with new bread. They would eat the old bread. It is explicitly commanded in God's Word. No one else eats that bread unless you're a priest. And is David a priest? No, he's not. Okay? You got got the the, the issue here. David goes in and asks for the bread, and the, the priest knows it's not legal to give David the bread, but there are two things about David that really matter here. Number one, is David just any old buddy at this moment in the story? No, he is the anointed next to be king, God's Messiah, his anointed one, right? His Messiah, his, his, his Messiah, his anointed one. Not the Messiah, but an anointed one, right? David has a unique role amongst all of God's people, and he's uniquely in a state of stress and need. He is on the verge of starvation, not quite that strong. He's very much hungry. He needs this food in order to do what the Lord has for him to do. And so the priest makes a decision. I am going to care for David in this moment because of his position and his need, and I'm going to violate the ceremonial rule of the Old Testament because David needs this right now. And Scripture nowhere condemns the priest for doing it or David for eating that bread, and Jesus sees a principle here. Now, that's a little complicated, but do you see what Jesus is doing? He's reading the Old Testament very carefully, and He's drawing out principles from God's Word. So before I go any further with that, I want to make an application. And Spurgeon just was, Spurgeon makes me smile a lot, but Spurgeon just makes me smile on this in some ways. Look again at verse 3, the opening of Jesus' response. Jesus, he said to them, have you not read what David did? Now that that should already put a little bit of a smile on your face coming from Jesus. Jesus is going to say that again. Look at verse 5. Or have you not read in the law? Or verse 7. And if you had known what this means, you see what Jesus does? He quotes the Bible three times. Each time, His introduction to the quote about the Bible is, surely you've read the Bible, right? And He's talking to who? He's talking to the Bible people, right? The people who know the Bible better than anyone else. The Pharisees, all they do is read and study the Bible. All they do is try to keep the Bible. They were known and famous for law-keeping and Bible knowledge. That's all they knew. And Jesus, with biting sarcasm, says, have you never read the Scripture? If anyone in the whole planet had read the Old Testament, it was his audience. But Jesus is saying, it's one thing to read the letter of the law. It's another thing to see the actual meaning of God's Word. And it is one thing. It, it, it is not hard in a church environment to know your Bible and not know your Bible. It is so easy to know all about God and not actually know God. People use the illustration of a celebrity. You might know the height, the hair color, how much money a celebrity has, what movies a celebrity has been in. You might know about a president or whoever it might be. You might know everything about their life. You've read the biography of a certain president and you know all about them. But you've never actually had experiential knowledge of that person. You've never met that person. You've never spoken to that person. You've never sat down at a dinner table and eaten a meal and shared with that person. It's one thing to know about someone. It's another thing to know someone. And Jesus is saying, yeah, you have a lot of knowledge about the Bible, but you don't really understand much at all about God's very Word. It's a stinging rebuke. Let me quote Spurgeon. Have you not read? Read, Spurgeon says. They could have said why we have read the book through very many times. We're always reading it. No passage escapes our critical eyes. Yet our Lord proceeds to put the question a second time, have you not read? As if they had not read after all, Though they were the greatest readers of the law then living, he insinuates that they have not read it all. You do not understand, and therefore you do not truly read it. Spurgeon says, "I know this. This is." He's writing this in the 1800s, 1860s-ish. Listen to this compared to today. Talk, he's, he's talking to his congregation, six thousand in London. Can you imagine that? No microphone. He says, I am afraid that this is a a magazine reading age. I'm thinking, has he seen the iPhone? This is a magazine reading age, a newspaper reading age, a periodical reading age, but not so much a Bible reading age as it ought to be. And then he just went on a, a Spurgeon wonderful rant about Bible reading, and I loved it. He just said, listen, and I'll say this to us, it is so easy to get sucked into screen time it is even this is the one that really got me from spurgeon it is easy for me sometimes to read books about the bible more than i'm actually reading the text of scripture there are times where i'm going okay i want to read all these different things Everyone, everyone what everyone said about the text no, no no don't neglect the text spurgeon said read many good books but make your home in the bible The Bible should be our primary book. It should be the book that we love to linger in and to read about and to study. And as we do so, we're not just trying to acquire knowledge. We're not trying to do one upmanship spiritually. We're not trying to develop hypercritical regulations that are not even in the text. We're trying to know the living God. We want to know the true meaning of scripture so we can commune with God. Let me ask you, I ask this often. When you open this book, do you encounter boring black marks on a page? Or, increasingly, as time goes on, do you commune with the living God? In other words, is what I just said Christian mumbo-jumbo sort of, you know, Christian language, or is it real to you? Communing with the living God in the text of Scripture, do you know what that means in your experience? Do you know what it means to be burdened, to be distressed? to be angry or whatever it is, anxious, to go alone into God's presence, to open His Word. Maybe you're in the Psalms, maybe in the Gospels, maybe one of Paul's letters. I don't know where you are. You open God's Word and you ask, Lord, I need to meet with you. I need to know you better. Please, Lord, meet with me. Open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things in your Word. Satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love that I might rejoice and be glad in you all my days. And then you begin to read God's very words and the Lord begins It may take time, it may not happen every day, but over time, the Lord begins to do what? He begins to melt our hard heart. The anger toward that other person begins to go down and a deep sense of the grief and evil of our own sin begins to rise. You know what I'm talking about? Suddenly, the sins of others against you begins to go down, and suddenly your own sins against God begin to become clearer in your eyes. Do you know what that's like? And you come out of the presence of God a different person than you went into half an hour ago. That's because the Lord is at work through His Word, and let Jesus say of us, I hope you have read, have you read in God's Word what the Lord has said? But let's not also miss what Jesus is going to get to, which is how Scripture points to Christ. So... Let's get back to our main point here. Here are the two points I think Jesus is getting at. One thing that connects the story of David with the story of His disciples is the word hungry is used in both spots. The disciples were hungry, David was hungry. Same word is used twice here in this text. So one thing is there was a physical need that was being met here, but I think that there is a much stronger connection between these two passages than you might notice at first. It's the connection between David and Jesus. See, David did something that not just anybody could do. Who was David? He was the Lord's anointed next king. And because of his position before God and his physical need, the priest made an exception and allowed David to do what he otherwise could not have done and the Lord approved and Jesus approved of that action. And here's what Jesus is saying, I am great David's greater son. One greater than David is here. And because I, because of my position in the truly anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the greater David, he will call himself later in Matthew, David's Lord. Because of, because of my status as God's chosen and anointed Messiah, I am able to do things that are different from the average person in some ways. But I will also add this. This is important. The disciples are not, this needs to be very clear. The disciples are not breaking the Old Testament law nowhere in the old testament does it say you cannot do what they are doing on the sabbath it says you cannot harvest grain on the sabbath but if the disciples are going to consider this harvesting grain you take a little piece off you go you blow the piece off you eat it that's not harvesting okay so what they've done is they've they've extrapolated beyond god's word and then they've condemned the innocent but jesus goes i am the greater david don't condemn the innocent let's move to point two jesus also appeals to the priests in the temple verses five and six let me read those again verse five Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Just stick with me here. Let Let me give the background. Here's what the priests were commanded to do in the law. You can jot down Numbers 28, 9, and 10 if you want to look that up later. Numbers 28, 9, and 10. Here's what it says. On the Sabbath day, This is what the priests have to do. It's on the Sabbath. This is working on the Sabbath, right? They're commanded to work on the Sabbath because of their job. So here's what it says. On the Sabbath day, two male lambs a year old without blemish and two tenths of an ephah, a fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil and its drink offering. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. They're offering double sacrifices every single Sabbath. Is that a lot of work? yes that is they're also the ones that put out the showbread on the sabbath every week so are they commanded by god to do work on sabbath on the saturday yes so they are profaning the sabbath they're violating the sabbath every single week and yet they're not really right because the lord has a specific task for them how does it work how is it the priest can work on saturday without violating the sabbath and the answer is first of all the law makes clear that they should but, but why because the work at the temple takes priority over the Sabbath law. If the Sabbath law took priority over the temple, they wouldn't offer animal sacrifices. Does that make sense? If Sabbath was more important than temple, then they would not be offering animal sacrifice on the Sabbath. But which one's weightier? God puts temple work over Sabbath and therefore they violate the Sabbath in a sense, but they, they're, not, they're not sinning because the t- work of the temple is weightier and more significant than Sabbath and therefore they are free from sin. Does that make sense? A similar example is in John 7, Jesus says it like this, Uh, He says, you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Why? Well, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with Me because on the Sabbath I made a a man's whole body well? In other words, on the Sabbath they would perform the rite of circumcision because that was of greater significance. Then the Sabbath command. You see, there's different weights here, and the Lord's saying, there are certain things that are more significant and therefore should be done on the Sabbath. Now, you say, what's the point of this, though? Well, let me, let me try to make this clearer. How does that help Jesus' argument make sense? Jesus is not at the temple. His disciples are not priests. What does that argument about the priests in the temple have to do with Jesus and His disciples? And this is where it's really breathtaking. (laughs) I I, I find it hard to believe the Pharisees even fully absorbed what Jesus said because it was so shocking. It was so scandalous. Here's the reason. Verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is saying, okay, temple work is more important than Sabbath. So people working in the temple can violate Sabbath without violating God's law because of the weights here, right? Now what is Jesus' next step in His argument? I am greater than the temple. That's an astonishing thing. Of course, He says it indirectly, something greater than the temple is here. He says this indirectly probably to keep Himself from being crucified too early It's probably why He says these kinds of things indirectly. He veils His statement, but it's clear He's talking about Himself. He says here, okay, I'm greater than the temple and My disciples are serving Me. So if the priests could serve in the temple and violate Sabbath and not be sinning, then My disciples can serve Me on the Sabbath and not be violating the Sabbath and not be sinning because I'm greater than the temple." That's, what, that's the argument that Jesus is making. What is Jesus saying here? I mean, He's saying, we just talked about this a little in Sunday school last hour, the temple is how God can dwell in the midst of His people. And Jesus is saying, God right now is dwelling more fully in the midst of your people in me bodily than in the building down the road. That's an astonishing thing. And then Jesus is also adding this, the work of the priest is something that I'm gonna carry out. And I'm gonna offer not the blood of bulls and goats. I'm gonna offer my own blood, spotless and without blemish. I am going to die to make a way for sinners to be right with a holy God. And I am the meeting point between heaven and earth. If you wanna meet God, Meet me, Jesus is saying. I am greater than the temple, and therefore, when my disciples serve me, they are not violating any law any more than the priests in the temple are. Let's move to his last point here. Before we move to that, I'll just quote Don Carson. The authority of the temple, of the temple laws, shielded the priests from guilt on the Sabbath, and the authority of Jesus shields His disciples from guilt. That's the argument. Okay, point number three, he appeals to Hosea, verses 7 and 8. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is the second time Jesus has quoted Hosea 6.6 in Matthew, which is kind of remarkable. And here's what I think is going on here, probably more than just this, but I'll give you at least part of it. When Hosea wrote his, uh, his, his when, he, when, he, when he was prophesying, when he wrote his book, Hosea was dealing with Israel who was doing what? Israel was, the, this is the state of Israel when Hosea wrote, Israel was maintaining the ceremonial outward laws, festivals, temple observance, these kinds of things. They were doing the outward stuff, but they were also worshiping Baal and other gods. So here's the point, they had forsaken steadfast love and mercy to God and others. But they had maintained the outward ceremonies. They were still killing animals. They were still offering sacrifice. But their heart was completely detached from what they were doing. And Jesus takes that moment out of that part in Israel's history and He says, okay, Pharisees, the same thing could be said about you guys. You guys are so obsessed with the ceremonial regulations of the law, so preoccupied with the exact uh, ins and outs of how you guys have kind of fleshed out the law in all your ins and outs and legalistic ways that you're actually missing the whole point which is mercy. In the Old Testament, steadfast love. You're missing the whole point. This is about loving God and loving neighbor. It's not about all your regulations while your heart is being untrue and unfaithful to the living God. And if you were looking at this the right way, you would not have condemned me or my disciples for anything that we are doing because we are not actually violating anything that God has commanded us to do. And then he just caps it off with verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Let me quote a commentator here. For he, the Son of Man, is the Sabbath Lord. And as the Sabbath Lord, Jesus both understands and effectively bestows the rest and restoration that are the true fulfillment of God's original intent in giving Sabbath rest to his people. The issue at hand then is not, this is important, the ultimate issue at hand is not proper observation of the Sabbath. You, have you noticed they're actually moving on from that? The, the real issue is this, it's a proper understanding of Jesus. See, Jesus takes the Sabbath issue and he uses it as a springboard to talk about who he is. I'm greater than David, he implies. I am greater than the temple. In fact, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus says, listen, the problem is not that we're debating Sabbath regulations. The problem is we're debating who I am. If you knew who I was, greater than David, greater than the temple, Lord of Sabbath. If you knew who I was, you would have absolutely no problem with what I'm doing because I am the God who made the rules in the first place. I am Lord of the Sabbath. I get to infallibly tell you and interpret to you what God's word says on these things. So really what starts as a debate about what you can do as work on Sabbath becomes a debate about who is this man, Jesus. If Jesus is who he claims to be, then he definitely is correct in his argument that is presented here. But if you reject Christ, then as the Pharisees do, they're going to take Him in the worst possible light. Let me move to a conclusion here with several uh, applications. I'm adapting these from another pastor. So how do the Pharisees go so wrong with God's law? Well, number one, this is is going to be a warning for all of us. They added to it and then held everyone else to their false standard. They added to God's law and then they held everyone else to their own false made-up standard. Now, now let me just take a second to try to unpack this. You you may have heard someone use the phrase like, this for me is a personal little legalism. And what they usually mean is not that they're trying to earn their salvation by works. What they usually mean is maybe there's a particular sin that you're especially prone to. And so you add extra guardrails in your life to avoid committing that sin. I think there is great wisdom in that. Do you hear what I'm saying? So if you know that there's a particular area that you are vulnerable to sin, then you might add an extra step of, of removal from you in that particular thing. You see how that could, I mean, I could give examples, but you know what I'm talking about there. And so here's, here's where we go wrong. That's fine. If you say, okay, I am prone to falling in this area, so I'm going to go the above and beyond in my own life to make sure I don't fall in that area again. Great. Make, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. That's Romans 13. Great. You see where you go? we, we can all go wrong here? We then take the extra step we added for ourselves, and what do we do? We find a well-meaning Christian who's not following our exact extra step, and what do we do? We condemn them based on what we added to the text for ourselves. Do you see what I'm saying here? So we gotta be very careful about this. We might need some extra guardrails on certain things, but we need to be careful not to hold everyone else in our life to the precise extra guardrail that we ourselves are living by. It can be very tempting to do that in our own lives. So, we should, we should not add to God's Word. Number two, these Pharisees did not understand exceptions to certain laws. I mean, like a silly illustration would be your wife is giving birth, and so you're going 25 over the speed limit on the way to the hospital, okay? There are, there are times where something takes priority over something else, right? There are times, we just understand this in life, there are times where certain things carry more weight because of the urgency of the moment, and so they take priority over other things. And so, the, the Pharisees had no understanding of exceptions to certain rules of ceremonies in particular. Unless, of course, you don't, you don't go, okay, well, um, I'm going to break God's... Uh, eternally binding moral law because of this particular, you don't go, okay, I'm going to do this and this. No, no, the issue here is on certain things like ceremonies and things of that nature, um, we need to be careful about exceptions in certain situations. We should not prioritize love to neighbor under the ceremonies in that regard. Number three, they prioritized external conformity over real love and mercy. This is extremely tempting in church world Right? So we can be outwardly very shiny and clean. We can make sure we never go do this, 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 and the other thing, and we've never done that before, and we're not going to do this again, and we we got all these outward issues that we've kind of locked away, but our heart could be completely numb and dead to God. That's a dangerous thing. And the Pharisees, again, outwardly whitewashed tombs, right? Outwardly they appeared beautiful, inwardly dead men's bones. That's what Jesus is going to say later on. So let us not prioritize external conformity over real love and mercy. Of course, our external actions matter. Yes, at times, willpower is required, but it's not only about the outward appearance. God looks at the heart, and we must, we must navigate at the level of the heart. Let me quote Jesus here, Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Remember this? For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You're tithing out of your spice racks. I love that. You tithe everything. And you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So, you see, don't neglect the others, but don't don't also ignore the heart and justice and mercy and faithfulness. Finally, last, last thing I'll say. These Pharisees choose a heavier yoke over Jesus and the rest He provides with His easy yoke and light burden. Just follow me here. The Pharisees are offering their version of Sabbath rest. It is riddled with man-made rules. It's exhausting. It provides no real rest for the soul. It provides no forgiveness of sins. It provides no true knowledge of God. In contrast, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and offers real rest for our souls. Hebrews 4 says it like this. Listen to this. Hebrews 4.8. Remember Joshua led them into the promised land, which was to give them rest. Listen to this. For if Joshua had given them rest, as in true final rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So if we're tempted to try to earn our way into God's presence, that work will leave you heavy and labored and it will not give you rest. You'll never do enough. Leave that aside. Turn to Christ in his finished work. Doesn't that just sound nice? His finished and completed work. It's done. You don't have to do anything to make your relationship with God happen. The Lord has made all things secure. All we do is turn and trust in Christ, and we have rest before God. We have acceptance before the Father. We have forgiveness of sins. We have life everlasting, and we can rest in the presence of Jesus who actually provides us with what we are looking for in Sabbath rest, the true rest for the people of God. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would not harshly judge others by rules that we have invented that are not actually true to Scripture. I pray that we would never neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, that we would love You truly and others from the heart, that we would forgive others from the heart. I pray also our outward life would be in full conformity to Your Word, and when we fail, that we would confess it quickly, we would repent, and that we would continue following You. And most of all, uh, Lord Jesus, I, I ask that we would come to you, that we would come out of the storm into the shelter of your presence, and that we would find true and abiding rest as we take your, uh, your yoke, your, your kind yoke, your light load onto our own shoulders and begin to walk the path of discipleship behind you, Lord. I pray that we would do so with great faith, trusting in you, seeing that you provide us with all that we need and that Your commands are not burdensome because we have the victory that overcomes the world, and that victory is our faith in the Lord Jesus that makes our commands not burdensome because they are driven by a true love, a love for God and a love for others. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.